How's everybody tonight? Does the wind blow anything out of your yard? <laughs> hey, Rusty, would you return my trash cans, please? Are they at your house yet? <laughs> I'm going to wait till they get there, and then I'll just call if that's okay. We'll fill them up, <laughs> fill them up and bring them back? Perfect. <clears throat> yeah, got to love the wind. Welcome to Idaho, huh? Hey, we're going to be in Isaiah 61. We are uh, rapidly approaching the end of the book of Isaiah, so that's it's kind of cool. I have to ask Jerry when I started it. I don't know when I started it, but we're coming up, wrapping up the end. And Isaiah 61 is a really familiar section of Isaiah. It's one uh, that was specifically quoted by Jesus in reference to himself. So we don't have to wonder, you know, what's Isaiah 61 about? Who is Isaiah 61 talking about? Jesus read it and said, these scriptures are speaking of me. And, and the people tried to throw him off a cliff, if you remember. We'll take a look at it in just a moment in Luke chapter 4. But as we look, one of the things that we want to kind of set the groundwork for is this concept, biblical concept of the anointed or the anointed one. So when the Bible talks about the anointed one, that, uh, the Hebrew word for that is Messiah. But, uh, and, and that word comes up a lot more than just in a proper sense of the Messiah, if that makes sense to you guys. Um, oftentimes when the Bible talks about the anointed, it'll, it'll use that phrase or the root of that phrase to describe. Uh, for example, when you have David and uh, Saul's king, and David says, I won't touch the hand of the Lord's anointed. And what, what was that all about? And you have a sense in which the, the um, judge, the, the final judge, Samuel, he's anointing the king, right? He's pouring oil. Uh, ultimately, he anoints uh, Saul. He also anoints David as the, the future king. And, and all of these things, they're... they're Every time we see that depiction of a king and his anointing, or a priest and his anointing, or uh, a prophet and his anointing, it's all the same concept, same picture. That, that phrase, the anointed one, means someone who is chosen by God and consecrated by God. So, it's in essence, God has lifted someone up and said, now... Uh, there's a purpose. I have a purpose, a point. Um, whether it's Saul or David or um, any of the prophets that God anointed and lifted up, there, it all pointed to the fact that the, that, that individual for that time, uh, like Esther said, uh, Mordecai said to Esther, for such a time as this, right, you've been uh, given this opportunity in, in, uh, in your life. And so you have... This thing, God choosing, God consecrating. And <clears throat> every earlier example of an anointing on human beings, whether prophet, priest, or king, uh, are in some way a pale representation of the anointed one. So the Bible always talked about, hey, you're anointed, and then the Bible would talk about, he's the anointed one. And so the scripture was, was painting a picture of, of all of these, if you will, little examples of a Messiah or a leader or a deliverer or a judge or a 
prophet, priest, king were all small examples of a fulfillment that would come through Jesus Christ. And so we have this idea. And that idea, there's some important things that David taught us about that idea as we work our way through Scripture. Because David, you know, we know David is the easiest example to see of a king who is or was anointed and a new king has been anointed. Right? God, through the prophet, anointed David. But David wouldn't, wouldn't take over. He wouldn't put down God's anointed. What did he say? He said, I won't touch the Lord's. In fact, when he cut him of his, of his robe, he was upset about it, right? I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have cut that. His, his point was, if God anointed him, then God, I'm going to let God take care of the when. And God's timing in that regard is always perfect. And why is that important? That's important because that it was at just the right time that Messiah came. He wasn't early and he wasn't late. He was right on time. He was right according to God's calendar. At just the right time, Christ died for us, right? He came and and performed that work. So each one of these cases, just as a reminder, as we look at this idea of the anointing that we'll see this evening, I just want to remind you about what that all what that is all about. Now, in Isaiah 61 is all about rejoicing. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. We're going to have a lot of rejoicing in this chapter. And the very first reason we're rejoicing is because of Messiah, the Anointed One. So let's look at verse 1. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So it's first part of of Isaiah 61. Now, we're reminded that this is something that Jesus directly quoted, but it's sometimes important for us to understand what he quoted, where he stopped, where he started, and, and why. And I think there's some important things that we can glean from that. In Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, we'll, we'll pick up the story where Jesus quotes it. He says, And he came to Nazareth, this is a town in which he had grown up, uh, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. Now the scroll the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down. And everybody looked at him, right? Everybody's looking at him. What's he going to say? And he said, today these scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. 
Now, Scripture says those people that he grew up with in that town, you know, they're questioning, isn't this Joseph's kid? Why would he think that, that the Scriptures are fulfilled of him? And, and eventually they try to throw him off a cliff, uh, and he passes through their midst. Now, there's a few things that we would learn when we look at what Jesus quotes, when Jesus quotes it. Now, maybe you have questions. I know people frequently ask me this question. How come the quotations of the Old Testament are different in the New Testament? In case you didn't pick up on that. It's because the New Testament quotes are from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is from the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew translation. So... Just like we've talked about, language has limitations, right? And, and translations going from language to language, you know, are going to develop or, or uh, uh, highlight different nuances of the language. So that's why it's different. Uh, in the direct quote, Jesus quoted from the Septuagint every time he quoted something from the Old Testament, at least from the New Testament uh, record of it. So... He quotes it. Now it's interesting because as he goes, he he goes through um, Isaiah 61 and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, right? So he's talking about his anointing. When Jesus was baptized, what is it that we that we see take place at the baptismal of Jesus? The, the scripture tells us that the Spirit descended upon him like a dove, right? And remained. So the point is that that at his baptism, you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon him. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. For what purpose? Because the Lord has anointed me, chosen and consecrated. Remember we talked about that? Chosen and consecrated. There's a, a purpose, a plan, a point for Jesus Christ. A reason why he is the Messiah. And then he tells us why. What has he been anointed to do? What is he consecrated and chosen to do? He's chosen to give good news to the poor. Now if you remember Jesus' ministry going through the poor, there was not a lot of people cared. Right? The Pharisees, would, now the, don't, don't, take, don't get me wrong, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious people were very generous. They gave alms regularly to the poor. You know there's a difference between giving alms to the poor and caring about the poor, right? Those aren't necessarily the same thing. Every problem is not solved by, you know, throwing change in a cup of a guy sitting on the corner, right? So the idea is he's come to give them good news. What's that good news? That God loves them. God has a purpose and a plan for their life. God is able to redeem them. He has good news to the poor. In fact... When he begins preaching, what is it the scribes and Pharisees going to say? Why are you talking to the dregs? Why are you talking to the poor, the tax collector, and a prostitute? Those are the three people that they always... What exactly are street people? You guys know? Now, tax collectors, probably not today. Tax collectors live in fancy houses. Then too. But for the most part, what they're describing is street people, right? The sick, the infirm, the poor... <clears throat> the prostitute, the hated. It just so happened, people hate both both poles, right? The poor and and the rich. But anyways, he's anointed to bring good news to the poor. 
He sent me to bind up the broken in hearted. He's come to, to bind up the broken hearted. This is not, this is something that has always been a part of God's heart. In Isaiah 40, um, no, actually, let me back up. In Psalm 34, verse 17, it says, Now, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them from them all. The, the point is, the psalmist is declaring that God is the answer to our problems. Now, that isn't to say that God is going to deliver you out of all your problems. It just says God's the answer to them. Proverbs would tell you like this, that if you follow Lady Wisdom, turn your back on the adulterous woman. If you will walk the path of, of wisdom and the fear of the Lord, the end of that road ends up with the Lord. The end of the other road doesn't. So he's saying, look, if you're broken hearted, know that God's near you and God's going to be your source and your solution. And ultimately, he's the place where you're going to arrive. God will deliver you from them all. But the last enemy that God delivers us from is what? Is death. That's what Paul would declare. In Psalm 51, 17, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, Oh God, these you will not despise. When Jesus was talking about the two guys who came to pray, you remember? One was a righteous person who said, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. And the other guy was a you know, dirty, no good tax collector who beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the one who leaves justified. Why? Because he comes before the Lord broken, right? Looking for... A God's ability to make him whole, to make him complete. So he's come to bind up the brokenhearted. Not the ones who aren't, but the ones who are. To bind up those who are broken. In, in Psalm 147.3, it says, He heals the brokenhearted, he binds up their wounds. So here is what he's saying. What have, what have I been anointed to do? I've been anointed to reach the poor with the good news. To bring them the good news of the gospel. We're going to develop that idea in just a minute. I'm going to bind up the brokenhearted. That's those are those who have come before the Lord in humility. And God says, if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will what? Lift you up. Right? He will lift you up. God lifts up those who come to him in humility. The picture of the binding up the brokenhearted. The next thing he said, he's come to release the captives. The scripture would declare to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, please don't run down too many crazy roads about releasing the captives in hell. Or, um, you know, we can run around that rose bush if you want, but it's prickly. So, who's he? when he says he's releasing the captives, he's releasing people who are in captivity right now. And where are people in captivity to? What are they in bondage to? Yeah, absolutely. Jesus would say in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 8, verse 34, He said to them, Truly, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. At that time, the scribes and the Pharisees are saying, Who? We've never been a slave to anyone. And Jesus is like, Yeah, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. 
Everyone is in captivity to our brokenness. Everyone is in captivity to our fallen nature. And so He has been <coughs> anointed, consecrated, and chosen to, uh, to save His people from their sin. Isn't that what the angel told Mary in the, in the Gospel of Luke? He has come to save His people from their sin. This is the deliverance. This is the captivity that is being broken. The bondage that is being broken. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? It's the same idea that Proverbs lays out. There's two roads, two paths you can go by. It was not Led Zeppelin who wrote it first. Solomon did. There's two paths you can go by. One leads to life, one leads to, to death. We get to choose, right? What road are you going to walk? And the Bible lays out for us uh, road signs to tell us what road you're on. I was, I was sharing about Proverbs a week, was it last week, Jonathan? I don't remember. A while back, they all start to run together in my brain after a while. And uh, I was talking about uh, the, the, I can't believe I'm going to talk about it in church. American Werewolf in London. None of you guys saw that movie, right? Some of us older people, maybe. And the, the only reason I'm referring to it is there was a line in that movie that says, look, uh, you're, it's safe to go to such and such a place. Just stay on the road. Right? Stay on the road. Watch out for wolves. So they're not paying any attention, and they walk right off the road into the middle of the woods, and they hear a wolf howl, and they go look down at their feet, and they're not on the road anymore. And it, that's what Proverbs reminds me of. That's what the scripture reminds me of. God says, the, the, the psalmist would say, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So, so I put that word in my heart and it, and it acts as a street sign to tell me, Am I on the road? Look down. If I'm not on the road, what do I do? Repent. Change your direction. Get back on the road, right? Stay on the path that leads to life. Jesus came to, to set the captives free. John eight thirty six said, so if the Son sets you free, what? You are free indeed. Yeah? He sets us free to release the captives. He's come to release the captives. And then he says this phrase that, uh, that is important for us to kind of sink our teeth in. Um, <clears throat> the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus stops. Oh, it's in the middle of a sentence. Most people don't stop in the middle of a sentence. But the anointed of God has a job. He is going to make two proclamations. He's going to herald two times. One time he's going to herald the time of the Lord's favor. And one day he's going to herald the time of the Lord's vengeance. And this is not the time of the Lord's vengeance. They're not the same time. This is not a, a Mende construction. It's not an if-then construction in the sentence. This is two separate events. One, the time of the Lord's favor. Jesus came to proclaim that at his birth. Then the time of the Lord's vengeance. Jesus will proclaim that at his return. In the interim, in the time between those two proclamations, we are in a period of jubilee. You understand this has been a, there's been a proclamation of God for Jubilee. Jubilee was when all your debts were forgiven. 
And so there's this proclamation from God. The year of Jubilee. You, your sins are forgiven. You can come to the Lord. You can have a relationship with Him. Now is the time. Today's the day. This is when that's all taking place. That's now. That's the proclamation that, that Jesus gave on His first coming. So when we look at this phrase, this phrase lays out for us uh, this idea to reveal prophecy. To, uh, to announce the year of favor. And to announce the year of vengeance. Both are real. In Isaiah 40, 49 verse 7. says this. Thus says the Lord. The Redeemer of Israel. And His Holy One. Okay. Holy One. Is uh, the, the Anointed One. Uh, the, the Messiah. So thus says the Lord. The Redeemer of Israel. Uh, and His Holy One. The Messiah. To one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they will prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, In the time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish a land, to apportion the desolate heritages, Saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They will feed along the ways. All the bare heights will be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, nor will there be scorching wind or sun to strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by the springs of water he will guide them. Isaiah 49 is the father speaking to his consecrated one, the son, and saying, look, these are the things I'm going to do through you. You're going to pronounce the... The year of the Lord's favor. The day of salvation. That time. That that has (coughs) lasted 2,000 years. But it will not last eternal. There's still another proclamation to come, right? There still is. God has forestolen, forestole, I don't know which one's right. His wrath. Right there's there there is a a, uh, a righteous requirement of sin. God has has in His long suffering set that aside, but He will not set it aside forever. Read Revelation chapter six through nineteen. Regardless as to w- what view you take on the book of Revelation, Revelation six through nineteen is not a good day for anybody. Right. Judgment after judgment after judgment, hardness of men's hearts, a failure to repent, the outpouring of the year of vengeance. But that's not today. Second Corinthians six two, <clears throat> Paul writes, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, in the day of salvation I have helped you. Straight quote from, from Isaiah forty nine. And then Paul says, Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day. Today's the day. Now is the time of salvation. We find ourselves in that first proclamation in Isaiah 61. But Isaiah 63, we're going to see a little bit later in a couple of weeks. In Isaiah 63, it says, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. So the, the day of salvation, the, the time of the Lord's favor, will, will end. And then the time of redemption the the redeemed the the payment for all the all the things wrought to God's kids that he was not okay with that he gave in his long suffering and patience grace 
But God's grace has an end, a limit. That period has a limit. Does that make sense? That period is going to stop. That period is going to end. So how is that described here in, in Isaiah 61? Where Jesus stopped to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then you have the second phrase, and the day of the vengeance of our God. Always the day of the Lord is, is just a day. Do you know why? Because his anger only lasts a moment. That's what the Bible declares. It's just a moment. His anger is much shorter than the, than the time of grace. If we say the time of grace has been 2,000 years, and I don't know that I can absolutely prove it, but let's say I say the day of the Lord is seven years. Which one's bigger? Seven years or 2,000? That's not a trick question. 2,000. <laughs> guys is making me nervous. 2,000 years is bigger. That's why it's the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. The year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. Now some would argue the day of the Lord is, is the moment. That, that final eschatological cleansing wherein all the wicked are wiped from the earth and all the righteous remain. But regardless, we see that there are, are uh, uh, a different emphasis, right, on the day of, on the year of favor and the day of vengeance. And I don't think that's accidental. So the Bible says that his anger is for a moment, just a moment. But his loving kindness the Bible describes as eternal. So, you know, we, we want to recognize, we want to see. So, and then he's still describing his purpose, okay? There's two proclamations. What is he consecrated for? Let's not lose sight. He's consecrated to give good news to the poor. That's the first proclamation, the day of salvation. Everybody with me? He's going to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison of those who are in bondage. That's that bondage and imprisonment to sin. He's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the time of the gospel of grace. He's going to proclaim the day of the vengeance of, the, of God that he is also going to proclaim. But that's not, that is the two proclamations. He is going to comfort all who mourn. <clears throat> How many? All. So he's going to comfort all who mourn to grant for those who mourn in Zion. Now remember, in Zion is a is a phrase, Zion is like talking about heavenly Jerusalem, okay? So I know for a Zionist and for a, a Jewish person who's a believer, Zion is Jerusalem and Israel, and, uh, and it very well may be in that geographical area, but the point of Zion is he's, pro he's making this proclamation, hey, all of the people who are a part of the new Jerusalem, now we read about that in Revelation, don't we? <clears throat> That's where everybody whose name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life is going to be, right? He's going to comfort all those who are in Zion. What do we read in Revelation? It says that God is going to wipe away every tear from their eye, right? That the Lord is going, and, and we're talking about the period of the church, right? Revelation. He's seven letters to seven churches carrying the letter of Revelation, uh, abroad to, uh, to the church. And so we have this message going forth. Well, here he says, I'm going to bring comfort to Zion. Me comfort to, to my people. 
to, to my land. I, I don't think that is uh, only uh, narrowed down to geographical Israel. And then he says, I'm going to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Now, I, I know I'm going to give them beauty for ashes sounds better. All right? Because we're so used to hearing it. I will give them beauty for ashes. But that, what does that mean? Because what it means to you is, is probably not what it meant to them. And that's why they put beautiful headdress. I will give you beauty for ashes means when someone was mourning, they would go out, they put on sackcloth and, what's the other word? Ashes. Where'd they dump the ashes? On their head. So they'd be sitting out in a dump or in their trash pile or in their yard somewhere and they'd just be pouring ash over their head. And the comparison that God is making is that's as low as you can be. Right? That picture with ash on your head. And God says, you're not going to have ash on your head. I'm going to give you a beautiful headdress. You're, the, the thing you're going to wear on your head is not ash. So it is very poetic for us, beauty for ashes. I just want us to understand what that means. It, it's, it means that you're not going to wear ashes for your hat. But rather you're going to have... And this... The, the, the language for this hat is a, is a, it actually rhymes in the Hebrew, which is interesting, and I'm not going to try to tell it to you, but, but the, the, um, the headdress is this picture of the most, um, I don't want to use the word gaudy because that's the wrong connotation, but just most over the top, crazy, you know, I don't know what your thing is. Top hat, I don't know what. Something, something that, that you see. If I say Gotti, I think the Pope's hat. And that, that's not what I want to picture. But it's just something beautiful, right? Something beautiful that is like you think, man, that's, that's it. Not ashes. And this is what it's important. What has he been consecrated to do? He's come, he's coming. Jesus is coming to, to take those who are humbly making themselves humble before the Lord and to brush the ash off their head and to put on the Stephanos, the, the crown, right? You're, you're mine. You're mine. I'm giving you beauty for ashes. But that's not the only comparison he's going to give. <clears throat> he's going to give the oil of gladness instead of mourning. So you're here in this pile weeping, just like that guy weeping over his sin. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? And, and the Lord is saying, no, 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 look, I'm going to give you the oil of gladness. I'm going, to, I'm going to pour oil over your head. Now, for you and I, we're like, oh, please don't pour oil over my head. But for them, man, that was awesome. That was a sign of celebration to have oil poured over. That was, that was costly stuff, man. And so he's saying, look, I'm going to put the oil of gladness, not... Not the mourning, not weeping. And I'm going to give you a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. The idea that I'm, I can barely go on, right? I'm, I'm, I'm out of strength. And he's like, oh man, not only are you not out of strength, you're ready to party now. So he's going to clothe them in this garment of praise. You know, this, this thing that says, man, I, I've only just begun. So that his people would be called oaks of righteousness. Now, I want to say it's in Isaiah 1. 
But you guys can can go back and look. But there's a reference to God's people becoming um, oaks without water, dried up and ready to burn. But now they're oaks of righteousness. Well watered, strong, right? Standing well. Why? Because they're they're rooted in him. They're not rooted in their in their own selfishness. So they will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, so that who is glorified? God, right? Because God is the one who has accomplished this beautiful thing. God has done this incredible work. So that's the first part of the rejoicing. And that's the part of rejoicing that that Jesus shared. But then there's going to be a rejoicing over well, what I called new construction. Look at it, verse uh, verse 4. It says, They shall build up the ancient ruins. And they shall raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. The idea is all the things that have been taken, everything you lost in Adam, you give in Christ and more. So in Adam, I, I lost my stuff, I lost my place, I lost my... <clears throat> right through sin, there's been a lot of loss in life. But here the Lord's saying, no, we're going to rejoice because there's going to be new construction. You're going to have more than you lost. Think about, does, does God illustrate that for us in Old Testament Scripture anywhere? You guys heard of Job, right? Where Job goes through a period of time where, in where he loses everything, goes through a suffering that God never really answers the questions to the wise. But he does tell him, everything you lose, you're going to give back. All of it. So he, he receives all those things back. And we see the same thing, this idea, right? There's going to be... People you don't know are going to take care of your goats. Like you're, you're going to be so okay, you're not even going to know the help. Now it's not to say, well, we shouldn't know our help. That's what God's saying. No, He's given an illustration, right? The illustration is you're right now. You've got ash on your head, and you're mourning, and you're weeping, and you've lost everything. But then you're going to have everything and more. There's going to be a new city, a new place. The streets are made of. Yeah, you guys heard all that before, right? The gates are made out of, ah, and St. Peter guards them, right? And if you, you have to have a joker, you can't get in, I think something like that. <clears throat> so, there's going to be, everything that was lost, is going to, there's going to be a restoration. Then he wants us to rejoice over our consecration to the Lord, that we belong to him. It says in verse 6, But you shall be called the priests of the Lord, and they shall speak to you as the ministers of our God. Now, a minister sounds so nice. You know, every time I do a wedding, you know, it asks me for my title. What's your title? So I write minister down. And, you know, I don't know, somewhere somebody thinks that's a cool word. It means slave. It's a fancy word for servant. It's the craziest thing ever. He's a minister. So he wears a black suit and a black tie and he looks all dour. No, that, that just means chief servant. That's what the word means. So they say, look, you're going to be consecrated to God. What are you going to be? You're going to be servants of God. 
What did God say? God said, you've, you've gone through your existence struggling with, with um, the, the comprehension of God around you in, in life. And he says, but one day where I am, you will be. And you're not going to need a sun or a moon because all the light is going to come from me. And I'll be with you. No more darkness, no more shadows, no more wandering, no more struggling. It'll be my presence. And so he's saying we're going to rejoice over the fact that we belong to God. We belong to God. Now the point of this, again, guys, these are illustrations. The point of this is not to go, so wait, there are going to be people on earth that don't know God who are going to say, hey, there goes the ministers of the Lord. No. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for you belong to Him. Now, you belong to God, and if there was anybody around to say anything, they would say, look, there goes the servants of our God and King. Just like when the, the, the uh, Revelation talks about that the kings of the earth are going to bring their gold to the, to the great city of the, of the king. And we wonder, well, wh- wh- who's going to make up those people? I don't know if there is of those people. The point is that God's kingdom is so um, immense and perfect that any nation anywhere else would have to pay homage to him. Because he's the king of kings and lord of... Yeah, you guys have heard all this stuff before, right? So we, we want to be able to separate ourselves from some of the limitations of strict literalism. Strict literalism can get us into trouble. I'm not saying literalism. You, you heard that, right? I'm a literalist. I'm not a strict literalist, right? If the Bible says Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, he was swallowed by a great fish. I'm not going to turn the fish into submarine or something, right? But there are other times when the Bible's using language of metaphor, speaking poetically. We're reading a poem. <laughs> so that... Those, those kind of things should not shock us. So this is the consecration. We belong to the Lord, ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations, and in your glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. So you've suffered all this time. But there will be a day when there will be, not only will there be no more suffering, there will be double honor. You're going you're gonna to have more than you ever lost. We get more than we ever lost in Christ. And that's what the word is declaring. That's what he came to declare. The day of the, the, the year of the favor of our God. This, for lack of a better term, dispensation of grace. This period of God's gracefulness on mankind. This day of salvation. Man, We're going to rejoice over the fact that we belong to Him. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they will possess a double portion. And they will have, how long, Joy? Everlasting. Everlasting. Sounds like a long time, right? Everlasting joy. Now, the reference, I think, here is back to when the children of Israel got the land. And there were some people who didn't like what they got. You ever been to Christmas and had somebody open a present they didn't want? Yeah, that's a bummer, especially if you bought it, right? Oh, oh, I got, I got, 
I got the 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 bad present. You know, my grandkids are like, uh, oh, thanks, Papa. And uh, where's where's my where's the other grandma's present? Oh, doggone it! You know, Lisa gonna beat me again. So <clears throat> that's a competition with grandparents. I'm sure none of you guys do that. Just us broken, messed up people. But. As we, uh, as we do those things, this, that's what happened. The Lord gave an inheritance to His people. And some of them rejoiced over their inheritance, and some of them didn't. And so, here He says, oh, they're, they're going to rejoice in their lot. On that day, when you get the prize, Jesus Christ, trust me, you're not going to go, oh man, that was not so good. No, you are going to celebrate. You'll rejoice over your consecration to the Lord. And then we're going to rejoice over the coming covenant. Look the next, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. How long does that last? Okay. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the peoples, all who see them will acknowledge them, and they are the offspring of the Lord. Another way to say that, they are the children of God. They're the offspring the Lord has blessed. Man, my people. On Isaiah 59, he said, And a Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression. That's the, the, the repentance, right? In order to come to faith. We must repent and believe. That's what Jesus taught. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, my words I have put in your mouth, will not depart out of your mouth or out of your offspring's mouth or out of the mouth of your children's offspring from this time forth and forevermore. So God said, look, I'm going to always give a witness. Scripture says the Lord never did anything without telling his prophets. Here now you've you've now today we have the word. We we nothing happens without us being able to look at God's word. We're going to rejoice over this coming covenant. What's the coming covenant? The everlasting covenant, the new covenant that Jesus Christ wrought when he said in his last supper with his disciples, This is the new covenant in my blood given for you. I don't know how to make that clear. This is the new covenant. And the new covenant would come with a new testament. That's how it worked. How the old covenant come with? The old testament. Well, before the new testament, it wasn't called the old testament. It was just called the testament and the covenant. You with me? And now you have a new covenant and a new testament giving the final revelation of the Lord. We're going to rejoice over the promises that God gave us. And ultimately, we'll rejoice because all of these things are accomplished by the covering of Messiah. In verse 10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. That's where our joy is going to come from this whole thing. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. So, how did we get saved? We put on His righteousness, right? Isn't that what the Scripture declares? So, to take off the old man and be clothed in Christ? 
to put on the new man. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. This is the, this is the story of the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son runs up, falls down on his knees before his dad. That's repentance. I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. And what does the father do? His son comes humble. His father lifts him up. Puts the robe on him. A ring on his finger, right? He declares him his son again. My son was dead. Now he's alive. He puts on the robe of righteousness. Did it, did it magically wash away all the things he had done? Not in the eyes of his brother anyway, but certainly in the eyes of his father it did. You're my son now. All that other stuff is gone as far as the east is from the west. He covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now, what's this relationship like? Like a bridegroom decks himself, like a priest with a beautiful headdress, like a bride adorns herself with jewels. <clears throat> For as the earth shall bring forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. That Here's what Isaiah said. Isaiah said, the Lord looked out over the people, and he wandered that there was no one to stand in the gap. And then he said, my arm is not short to save. I will. So he put on flesh. The son came. And he paid the price. He stood in the gap. He is the intercessor, right? So God has become our Salvation. Yehoshua. Jesus. And he has made that way. And so he first proclaims the year of God's favor. But there will be an end date. The day of God's vengeance. That's been since Genesis, right? Since Genesis have been talking about the day of the Lord. There will be the day of the Lord. There will be judgment day. But the point is not to harp on judgment day and be afraid of judgment day. The, the point is now's the day of salvation. Today's the time to get your heart right with the Lord and be in a right relationship with him. Stop worrying about, let God worry about how he deals with his vengeance. He's asking you, repent and believe. And you will have more than you ever lost. Amen? Amen? That's the promise of Isaiah 61. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for this time. We can study your word. God, we can open up the pages of scripture. Lord, I pray that we would just come to just sink our roots deep, Lord, into your truth. Because I don't want to be the, the dried up, ready to be burned trees of earlier Isaiah. I want to be the oak of righteousness, planted by the waters of the Lord, drinking deep in your truth. <clears throat> Knowing that it is your truth, your word, your direction that shapes me, not the other way around. So God, may we be conformed by your word into the image of your son. 
so that we become like you. And while on this earth we go through times of suffering and hardship and brokenheartedness, Lord, may we always have the attitude of the humble who bows before the Lord and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God has proclaimed, this is the time of mercy. This is the time of grace. This is the time of forgiveness and salvation. Now is the time. Today is the day. Jesus proclaimed that all those years ago in a synagogue in Nazareth, a place that you can still visit, it's wild that all of this is rooted in history, not some fable. It's a real place. You really came. You really did these things. You made this proclamation. So God, for those of us who follow you, may we consistently proclaim along with you. It's a time of favor. It's a year of jubilee. God is willing to forgive. All we need to do is repent. Well, Lord, we thank you for that. On the horizon somewhere there is a day of vengeance that will come. But until that time, we are called to proclaim, to honor, to glorify, to exemplify by our life, Lord, as we follow you, that we know, man, I can rejoice. I rejoice over the gift of Messiah, the forgiveness that he wrought, the transformation that he's done in my life. And I know one day I'll walk on those streets and I know I won't say, man, this place is a drag. I know what I'll say is, wow, there is so much more in Christ than there was ever outside. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy, the the lies that draw us to the darkness. John says that light came to the world, but the world could not comprehend it. The world couldn't put the light out, but it just couldn't quite make sense of the light. So then Jesus made a declaration, I am the light of the world. Anyone who comes to me won't walk in darkness. When John chapter 3 said, this is the condemnation of the world. Light has come to you. But you love the darkness rather than the light. God, I just pray in these days and this time, people would come to the light, see the light, trust the light, put their faith in the light. God, that you would deliver your people. And one day there will be such a wedding feast. We will be blown away. As we look forward to that day, God, we pray that you would keep us into that time. And may we keep our eyes on the prize. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. i
lost his grip on me and you have broken every chain there's salvation in your name Jesus Christ my living hope oh Jesus Christ my living hope no God you are my living hope amen Father God we just praise you tonight God just for you for being our living hope, God, and we just wait for the day that you come.